0: Thank you, Pauline. Um, Good evening, everybody. So, as Pauline has said, I'm uh, Peter Kennedy. It's my great pleasure uh, to serve as President of the the Royal Irish Academy. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you all here this evening. As Pauline has said, this is the 250th anniversary of the birth of Mariah Edgeworth. Um, I was wondering when, as an Academy, we'd get around to celebrating her birthday. It was the first of January. Uh, It's nearly the end of the year, but we finally got around uh, to doing something very special. So I know you have a conference, two-day conference, in Trinity starting tomorrow. uh, And I'm aware that there are delegates here from around the world, from the US, Australia, Germany, Japan, and Europe. So welcome. All to Dublin, welcome to the Academy. Um, It's it's great that so many people are interested in her work after such a long time. She had a great influence, uh, not just on writing, but also on the ways of of this Academy. Uh, The Academy was founded in 1785. And there are two sections, one of uh, science, the second, polite literature and antiquities. Today, that trades as humanities and social sciences, but at the time polite literature and antiquities. The president at the time uh, when she was elected uh, the first female honorary member of the academy in 1842 at the grand age of 74, the president was the scientist uh, William Rowan Hamilton. And he was much younger than her but sought her advice Uh, because she she was a very wise person about many, many things, and he greatly valued her advice. And there's much correspondence that the Academy holds uh, between the two of them. But in particular, he asked her um, to, in one letter, to favour me with some hints as to the best way in which our body may be made to assist in advancing the interests of polite literature. She responded... The most certain mode by which you can promote the progress of polite literature in Ireland is by giving as president the example of polite manners, amenity of temper, and candour in discussion. Avoid all competition and speak less than others. So uh, I won't be doing much talking tonight. This event has been organized by the Polite Literature and Antiquities Study of Languages, Literature, Culture, and Communication Committee of the Academy. We have invited uh, well-known Irish women writers to celebrate uh, Mariah's legacy. Marina Carr, Claire Kilroy, Eileen Nghillanon, and Eileen. Nghurina. The panel discussion will be chaired by Margaret Kelleher, Professor and Chair of Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama at University College Dublin. On behalf of the Academy, I would like to thank the sponsors of the event, the Irish Times, Ulster University School of English, DCU School of English, TCD School of English, and the School of Linguistic, Speech and Communication Sciences. Uh, I'd also like to thank our uh, Irish Sign Language um, interpreters this evening. We'll commence the event with a brief introductory talk on Mariah Edgeworth's life uh, as a professional writer by Claire Connolly, member of the Royal Irish Academy, professor of English at University College Cork. She's a cultural historian of 18th and 19th century Ireland. The title of her talk is Mariah Edgeworth and Monsieur Les Experts, uh, A Life in Literature and Criticism.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Presidents. Yes, the term Lay's experts, as Edgeworth might have uh, uh, said, comes from a late letter where she's talking to her sister about some unwanted advice. Mariah Edgeworth's letters are full of characters who tell long stories about themselves. Uh, from Teddy Quirk, uh, who, you know, reluctantly admits his duty to say a few words about himself at the start of Castle Rock Grant, Uh, To Lady Delacour, who takes up several chapters of Belinda in 1801 with her account of the life and opinions of a lady of quality by herself. Um, And in Helen, the last novel from 1837, Lady Davenant sits down to regale the readers with some passages from my life. All of those characters tell their stories from a position of some difficulty in the present, trying to make sense of a world that has changed around them. So what then of Mariah Edgeworth's own life in writing, which is also her life in being read and reviewed? Tonight I'm just going to briefly sketch out the terrain of Edgeworth's life in literature and in criticism, hoping that our distinguished panel of contemporary women writers may find in the story some material for reflection. So how did Edgeworth fare at the hands of the experts? Throughout her career, she preferred to trust in the commercial power of the press over the fading but still present world of aristocratic cultural patronage, believing with her father, Richard Lovell Edgeworth, that as he said, the London booksellers are the best patrons. Professional, professional authorship in this period, the turn of the 18th into the early 19th century, still consisted of a kind of a mixed economy uh, where one could rely on uh, commercial income from selling books, uh, but also writers depended on aristocratic patronage. Her Irish contemporary Sidney Owenson, Lady Morgan and Thomas Moore are really good examples of writers who move between those two ways of making a living and made a career. Uh, But the London booksellers uh, were tricky for Edgeworth um, in in one way, which was the distance between London and um, her home in in Edgeworthstown. And Edgeworth often attests to this issue. Uh, There's a wonderful letter in the National Library of Scotland where she writes to her friend Lady Romilly and says, oh, the heart is sick with hoping and hoping before books reach us in Ireland. Uh, And when Edgeworth proposed the founding of a journal devoted solely to the work of literary ladies uh, to her friend the poet Anna Letitia Barbold in the early years of the 19th century, she must have felt part of or perhaps wanted to shape a relation to this wider world of writing, of women's writing. Uh, She was careful um, about reviewing though and held back from giving public opinions on the writing of others despite what are often very strong opinions that we can find in the the letters, a very decided literary taste um, on others' writings. And this may be related of course to her dislike of having her letters circulated in public which is something that's uh, very well attested to in Valerie Pakenham's recent collection of the letters. Um, uh, As early as 1802, she instructed her brother, Charles Sneed Edgeworth, as followed, ''Don't send my letters travelling about. They're only for you and the house. I hate public letters.'' Uh, And in the same letter, she reports on a London meeting between her and her father and the publisher Richard Phillips. Richard Lovell Edgeworth and Mariah Edgeworth were in London en route to France in this period, in 1802, the period during the Peace of Amiens, when one could travel um, uh, safely to France for for about a year. Richard Phillips we know in literary history as the gentleman who published The Wild Irish Girl, Sidney Owenson's smash hit novel of 1806. Uh, so, Edgeworth and her father met Richard Phillips, who, who came to visit them in their, in their London drawing room. And in the course of conversation, Edgeworth says in a letter, my father talked of writing his life. As an anecdote in it, said Phillips, this is Edgeworth's recounting, you may say if you please that Phillips offered you a thousand pounds for it. And it's a funny kind of moment. Uh, the Edgeworths were rather affronted at Phillips' crassness uh, in offering an anecdote for the life. But Edgeworth in the letter also reports with evident interest he actually gives Mrs. Inchbald a thousand for her life, she said. Now the Edwards met Richard Phillips on this same occasion in London in the company of a certain Miss Linwood, uh, a figure now lost to literary fame uh, but of interest in the early 19th century. Uh, from the letter you get the impression she rather came crashing into the drawing room with Phillips and was perhaps not invited. Uh, At the time, she was enjoying a moment of fame based on her Leicester Square exhibition of classic oil paintings reworked in sewing thread. Um, Edgeworth had visited the gallery to look at these paintings with her sister and rather sniffily remarks that she could not help regretting that Miss Linwood had not bestowed these same talents and perseverance upon painting rather than just recreating oil paintings in, in worsted, which is what she does. And when Miss Linwood arrived in the drawing room, Edward says of her, she looks not unlike a strolling player in a very dirty, tumbled riding hat covered with black feathers all on one side. She goes on, Edward, in the letter to say, I wish she had a nail brush. The vigour and energy of a kind of regency culture of popular entertainment, of which literature was, after all, one important part, obviously both fascinated Edgeworth but maybe partly repulsed her as well. Uh, And it's a complex world that she was learning to work in, to move within, um, and uh, was successful in doing so. In the early years of the 19th century, she was taken up by the Edinburgh Review, the very serious, uh, significant. Uh, uh, literary journal and through it earned a reputation as the serious author of books about Ireland. She did, began to get her first taste of more negative reviews when the Quarterly uh, gave a negative review to her first series of Tales of Fashionable Life in 189. Uh, now this was perhaps inevitable because these were rival journals with the Tory Quarterly having been set up in opposition to the Whig Edinburgh Review. And Walter Scott, who was involved with the Quarterly, took the trouble to write to Edward's father, to write to Richard Lovell Edgeworth, to disown any involvement, personal involvement from him in the review. And the letter that he wrote about the review was sent in 1811, two years after the publication of the review, suggesting this issue was rumbling away uh, and causing consternation still. We know now, uh, which no, they didn't know then, the Edwards didn't know then, the review was written by a certain Henry John Stephen, a serious young man as he's often described in the literature, who, uh, a lawyer who was keen to make his name um, in literature. Some passages were also written by a critic named William Gifford who had asked that the journal sent him copies of Ed- the Edwards work on practical education so he could take a few swipes at that as well in the review. These are the experts. Anna Letitia Barbold, whom Edgeworth had approached to set up the Journal for Literary Ladies, uh, at the time Barbold said no, that she didn't see that women writers as a body necessarily had that much in common, Uh, saw the review and defended Edgeworth in The Gentleman's magazine. She also wrote a letter to Edgeworth on the topic which ends with an utterly peerless piece of advice from one, one writer to another. Barbold says, write on, shine out, defy them. Uh, but when Barbold was attacked um, for her poem, England in 1811, a controversial anti-war poem for which she received serious criticism from uh, John Wilson Croker, a poem that Edgeworth had, uh, was in, had helped her think about when she was first writing it, um, this, is what the, this is what Edgeworth said. I cannot describe to you the indignation or rather the disgust that we felt of the manner in which you are treated by the quarterly review. My father and I, in the moment of provocation, snatched up our pens to answer it. But a minute's reflection convinced us that silent contempt is the best answer. The public will do you justice. So she calls on a kind of abstract body of readers. The public will defend, Barbold, But in the process of thinking and temporising, Edgeworth lost a friend. And that relationship didn't really recover. In 1813 and 14, Mary Edgeworth went to London as a lion of the literary cultural, uh, and cultural scene, dining with the greats um, uh, and you know, experiencing London with a kind of hungry curiosity which she drew on for her last great novel, Helen. In that novel, Lady Davenant talks about how positively beneficial it is to be in London where books circulate all the time. In London, she says, one book drives out another. And the characteristically intriguing and contradictory and unlikely point is that books are more dangerous in the country where you might just get one and be stuck with it for a long time than they are in the city. As this was all happening, Edgeworth herself, of course, was becoming a figure on that scene and a kind of figure of curiosity. And a strange rumour sort of attaches itself to her from this period, which is that she might have been looking at things a bit too closely. So, where once she's uh, celebrated for her realism and her skill at copying from the life, this begins to seem a little kind of less appropriate. Um, following the publication of um, Patronage, her novel of English public life of 1814, Sydney Smith who was otherwise an admirer of her work wrote to a friend saying, if she has put in her novels people who fed her and her odious father then she is not trustworthy. <laughs> Uh, One of her own letters, one of Edward's own letters records a rumour that she heard about herself from a visitor to Edwardstown, a Mr. Ward, in 1816. He told me that he had heard in London that I had a sort of memoria technica by which I could remember everything that was said in conversation and by certain motions of my fingers could, while people were talking to me, I guess under the table, note down all the ridiculous points. These are the rumours that attend success. When Edgeworth published Patronage in 1814, she was at the pinnacle of a career. She was paid £2,100 for patronage in the year in which Scott earned £700 for Waverley and Austin paid to publish Mansfield Park herself. Um, patronage, though, didn't sell well, particularly in its second edition, and the period after that is the kind of a long fall off in Edgeworth's. Um, uh, reputation, especially in sales, culminating in the hostile reception given to her father's memoirs in 1820, which she had helped to, to conclude. Among the many aspects of patronage, it's a whole other story that were singled out for criticism. Let me quickly just draw your attention to one Edward's I- apparently improper use of the word spittle. It's a word she uses in the novel. Uh, in, the, in the novel, the character of Lord Alborough, the mighty political lord, discovers that he has inadvertently offended an important duke by sending him a private note sealed with a wafer. Disgusted, Lord um, the duke gives the letter to his secretary saying, ''Open that if you please, sir. I wonder that any man could send me his spittle.'' Um, and that's the scene that Edgeworth uses. Edgeworth later wrote in defense of the scene to another woman writer, Elizabeth Inchbold, Mrs. Inchbold, in terms that surely resonate for women writers today. This is what Edgeworth says. Pray observe, the fair authoress does not say the word in her own person. Why impute to me the characteristic improprieties of my characters? Don't hate me, she says. Did you hate Cervantes for drawing pa- Sancho Panza eating behind the door? Uh, Reviewers and patronage then are very sternly in agreement though that because Edward's reputation is so high,